people can believe that they're bias-free and nevertheless perpetrate and find ways, unconscious ways, to hold women back. And so I committed myself to work with Andy to make certain that we did everything we could to end that. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have a pair to share with you today. Really excited about what they have to talk about. Authors of the popular book, Breaking Through Bias, Communication Techniques for Women to Succeed at Work. Married lawyers Andy Kramer and Al Harris have been mentoring women and speaking and writing about gender communication for more than 30 years. This power couple brings a unique viewpoint to both women and men looking to navigate gender bias. They are frequent keynote speakers and conduct workshops for multinational organizations to better understand the world of gender bias. Andy and Al, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here, Dr. Richard. Nice to see you. Nice to be on the show. Excellent. So there's so many things that we could get started on. I'm curious, let's talk about, so you guys are are lawyers together, but tell us the story because most lawyers don't come out of law school and they decide to do this. So talk to us about what brought you guys together and specifically what got you guys together to do the work that you're doing today that's so very important. Well, when I got out of law school, I would have thought that uh, the notion that men and women could communicate differently or be perceived or treated differently in the workplace was really something that I couldn't imagine. And it wasn't really until I left a tiny little law firm, which was Al's firm, where I started my practice and went to a big firm where what I found was that stereotypes and the biases that flow from them influence the ways in which people uh, interact with you and treat you and believe your uh, skill sets are going to be com- uh, tied to who you are, as to whether a woman, a man, a leader, a family, a mother. And uh, so that was really what uh, changed my view and made me think that it was important to start worrying about, talking about, and trying to solve these problems. Well. Andy left our firm, I might say, was a tiny firm when she came. She was the seventh lawyer, I believe. And uh, by the time we merged into a much larger firm, we were 125 lawyers. And she's been gone now for 20 years. 20 years. So during that time, we've been talking about these issues. And I was convinced just knowing that I was a wonderful person, bias-free, without a prejudice bone in my body, that we were running a law firm that was going to be fair to everyone, that we were going to be the exemplar. And by the time Andy left and I started to 
look around our firm, I realized that we weren't doing any better with respect to getting senior women into our leadership ranks than anybody else. And so that got me started thinking that people can believe that they're bias-free and nevertheless perpetrate and find ways, unconscious ways, to hold women back. And so I committed myself to work with Andy to make certain that we did everything we could to end that. What you said is so interesting, Al, because I think many people listening to this show would say it's, it's 2019 and you know the businesses that we're running, we're, we're really trying to be fair and equitable. And you said that you thought that you were bias-free, but there are some of these unconscious things that you were doing that were actually directing you to the contrary. So talk to us, give us some concrete examples of some things that people might be doing that are creating gender bias in the workplace, even when they think that they're, they're not? Well, the simplest is that we all like to work with people who are like us. We reach out and ask people who are like us to work on our teams, to do the projects that we've been tasked with doing. And so we associate with, we hang out with, we go to lunch with, we have drinks with, people who are like us. And so what, in fact, when men are running organizations without being biased in any kind of explicit way, they reach out to other men. They bring up other men because they're the ones they're comfortable with. And so that what we see is a pattern, a self-perpetuating pattern of men mentoring, supporting, advocating for other men and those other men moving up, and the women being ignored. Any statistics you could share with us about what the hiring cycle and then career progression cycle looks like in corporate America for men versus women? Well, let's just take major, let's take law, which is I know best, and we can extrapolate from there to make your business. But in law, There are more women than men graduating from law school. Uh, Women are coming into major law firms at about the same percentage as men, so that the pipeline is diverse. By the time we get to the what in law is called the non-equity or limited partner ranks, that is the people who are called partners but are not participating, Women have dropped down to about 30%. So they've gone from 50% entry level to 30% uh, at that partner level. And when we then go down to the equity partner ranks, that is the full partners, the participating partners, the people that make the most money, women drop down to about 18%. And that's held true for the past 25 years. So we've got a progression whereby while women are, in fact, graduating from college, from professional schools to a equal extent as men, by the time they get into the workplace, they are dropping off that progression ladder in fairly dramatic numbers. One, one of the things that I could add to that is that 
the assumption very often is, oh, well, women drop out because there's other things that they care about, that they want to have their families or that they're responsible for their homes. And that's true that they have those responsibilities uh, more than many men do. But the reality is that they drop out because the, the companies, the firms, the businesses that they work for are not conducive for them. They feel pushed out. They don't feel included and that they don't get the support that they need in the context of um, uh, managing their, their domestic schedules. And so what happens is it's not that women don't want to continue and make it up the ladder. What happens is that they feel that there isn't a, tr- uh, a course for them, that they're excluded from the important projects that give them the opportunities to uh, move on, and they feel as if they're being nudged out of their practices, out of their jobs. So you've shared with us some some pretty alarming things, and the, the thing that's most interesting to me out, out of the numbers you shared in law, and you know whether that exactly can be extrapolated into different sectors, you know, we don't know, but certainly you would assume that there'd be some parallels there. So it, it, the, the numbers, the numbers for fortune 500 companies are about the same. Okay. So that being said, what are some things that some companies can do to start making some shifts? How do we fix this? Well, we could just say to people, don't be biased. And that's what a lot of the bias training, the anti-bias training that companies give to their employees are all about. And that doesn't solve the problem. So what we have to do is we have to first provide education because information is power. And so by allowing people to understand about how biases work and how it's not intentional and it's not finger pointing, that's sort of step one. But the other things that are important is that policies and procedures need to be implemented that take this discretion out of the process of evaluating other people. And so what happens is, for example, in the hiring and recruiting process, um, if you just let people interview candidates to talk about whatever they want, then what happens is you find that you don't learn anything about the women or the people of color because the senior white guys are more excited about and interested in talking to the junior white guy who's come in to uh, be um, interviewed. And so if you have standards and, and objectives and job descriptions, that is a starting point, can be very helpful. And then when you're evaluating people, if you evaluate them in ways that remove some of the discretion from the evaluators, it makes a big difference in how people can be evaluated. I know Al can elaborate on that if you'd like. But. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about that, Al. That's interesting. Well, what Andy was pointing to is the fact that subjectivity is the enemy in this process. It is when we go with our gut, when we allow our instincts to make these career-affecting decisions, that's when the stereotypes that we all have creep into our decisions. That's when we unconsciously think that, oh, men are naturally better leaders than women. Men are more ambitious than women. When we allow ourselves to think instinctively, 
we make mistakes. And so what we need to do is find ways when we are making these career-affecting decisions to slow our thinking down. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. Can you share with us a few more concrete things that a corporation can do, large or small? You said they need to find ways to think more slowly, to do that slow thinking. So give us a few more specific things that somebody listening to this right now could start implementing today in their, in their businesses. Well, one thing is to, when you're evaluating people, instead of open-ended questions like, you know, how is this person doing? Or do you think this person has a, has a career here? Uh, one of the things you can do is you can set out core competencies as to what you would expect a person at this level to be able to accomplish and evaluate them against those measures instead of, well, uh, she's a slow starter or he, he's, a, you know, he's, he's ambitious. The other thing is that you don't let people make these decisions in a vacuum by themselves where if you have them comparing people, one person to another, as opposed to each person individually, that makes a big difference. And if you have more than one person evaluating the person who's being reviewed and you have them explain to each other their thoughts before they reach conclusions, instead of reaching their conclusions first and then presenting them as a completed, you know, a completed exercise then there's more and more give and take, more and more evaluation of the core competencies as opposed to, well, I just don't like Dr. Richard. When, when we have to explain our decision process to someone else, we become much more careful. We don't want to appear foolish or rash. We want to appear rational and thoughtful. And so any ways that organizations can force people to justify their decision-making process, the points they considered, the characteristics that they were looking for, the talents that they saw in one person versus another, when we can get people to explain why they would make a decision that they would, before they make it, and then to listen to the other person's explanation of how they would make the decision, then we do much better. That makes sense. And so I, I want to shift gears a little bit. So we've talked about some things that organizations can do on the outset from a hiring standpoint to, to improve this. But let's talk about things that organizations can do today so that we can keep moving forward with men and women who are working together. So let's in let's talk about that from 
a present tense standpoint. So you're you're in your organization. There's there's men and women obviously working together. What what can we do to improve those relationships? Well, one thing is we could have mandatory mentorship programs, which would allow the women and the men to work together to to have their careers evaluated collectively. What happens now is that in most organizations, men, because they have an affinity towards other men, will mentor and support other men. So if we made mentorship a mandatory part of the process of of being um, increasing and promoting, uh, climbing up your career, then that would give women access to more people who have the power and who could help them in advancing in their careers. So that's just one thing that could happen immediately. So you're, you're proposing that men mentoring women is what you're talking about. As well, yes, men mentor women as well as women mentor men and men mentor men and women mentor women. Okay. Uh, whole combination. And, and it actually brings up an interesting point. You said women, women mentoring women. There is a perception that's out there that women can have hostility between each other in, in the workplace. Talk to us about that perception. Well, that perception is um, what actually prompted us to write our second book, which is at the publisher right now. Uh, The title of it is It's Not You, It's the Workplace, Women's Conflict at Work and the Bias that Built It. And what we found in the research that we did concluded is that it's not that women don't like or are inherently mean or nasty to other women. It's just that in gendered workplaces, workplaces where men are the ones who are in control, where masculine values and and cultures um, uh, run the companies, that it forces women to be the outsider and moves them into positions where they could be hostile to each other because there's only one spot and I've got it. So if I'm helping you, then I'm get, I'm building my my own exit and. Um, different sorts of attitudes that that kick in in workplaces where you don't feel welcomed. There's no question but that women do very often have difficulty working with other women. We've had women come up to us after our workshops uh, or email us or comment on our website saying, you're absolutely right about the gender bias that you talk about. You're absolutely right that it's harder for women to make it. But what you don't talk about is the fact that women are making it hard for other women to make it. You've got to talk about that. And that's what this second book is about. And as Andy said, what we found was that women don't make it hard for other women to succeed because they're inherently mean or they are hostile to other women or that they are naturally antagonistic. Women make it hard for other women because it's hard for all women. And therefore, the women are thrown into competition with one another as opposed to competing with the men openly. They have to compete with each other. And as Andy said, there may be a limited number of leadership spots for women. It may be that in order to get ahead, Women have to more closely identify with the senior men, and that means distancing themselves from the women. There could be lots of things, but it's the bias in the workplace, not women's nature, that make it hard for women to get along with each other. 
And we've, we've teased now your second book, but we didn't really spend any time directly talking about your first, first book, Breaking Through Bias, Communication Techniques for Women to Succeed at Work. So I, I suspect the spirit of that book is a lot of what we've been talking about for the first part of the show. Any specific things you'd like to add to that regarding what this book does and how it brings value to people? Well, in Breaking Through Bias, um, we what we did is we started with the information is power concept, which is explaining what the stereotypes and the biases are and, and what uh, people tend to do because of the assumptions that they have about other people. And then what we did is we turned it to a, what can women do today so that in gender-biased workplaces, and even in the most well-intentioned organizations, there's still going to be gender bias. In gender-biased workplaces, what can women do today to advance in their careers? And then we divided it into two parts. One is conversations with herself, which is what conversations can women have with ourselves about what we need to do in order to succeed in the workplace. And then the last part of it is conversations with other people which focuses on verbal and nonverbal and written communication, where there are tendencies for women and men to act in different ways because of the ways that we're socialized and the way that the environments encourage us to interact with each other. What Andy's talking about is that communication is a way of giving other people an impression of us. Communication often transmits content, thought, ideas, but equally important, if not more important, is that the way in which we communicate conveys things about us, about how we are, about what kind of people we are, about how strong we are, or forceful, or ambitious or modest, or, or approachable, or approachable. Or so lots of things. So we like to think about communication as impression management. It is a way in which we can use the way we appear, the way we speak, the way we hold ourselves as techniques to affect other people's perceptions of us. And we believe that through communication techniques, and the impressions that we can shape in other people, women can do a great deal to avoid the stereotypes and biases that they are often subject to. So we're, we're short on time, but I, I would love for you to share a few of those specific communication techniques. Okay. So for example, because women are expected to be assumed to be and punished if we're not modest and helpful and nice and sweet, then very often women will couch uh, difficult conversations or their suggestions with things like, this may be a dumb idea, but, or I might have missed the beginning, or I might be off base here. Things that depreciate what it is that they're going to say in a way that tries to make them not as confrontational as they might be if they said the answer's X. So that's sort of one kind of communication technique that's used. I'll give you an example about meetings, for example. Very often when women come into meetings, they don't take up as much space as men do. 
And the situation around the world is that people who are powerful are the people who take up space. So that if women are the ones who constantly move, squish together to make room for the men or for the latecomers to the meeting, and the men are still spread out and very sort of comfortable, the perception at that table is going to be that the people who have the space are more powerful than the people who don't. And so a trick is a woman goes into a meeting, she claims her space, she puts papers down, she puts her her computer down, whatever, but she creates a a, a distance, a space where she's seen as, as owning that space. And then in meetings, very often, men will talk over or interrupt women uh, primarily because they are socialized to believe that somehow the guys have something more important to say. So women need to find ways to claim their conversations. And very often, if a woman is small, a trick that we recommend is she can stand up and go get a glass of water, a cup of coffee, and have her conversation standing because it's much harder for other people to ignore you when you're standing and they're sitting down. So there's all these tips and takeaways that we provide on a chapter-by-chapter basis. Very good. Uh, this is this has been such valuable information, and I'm grateful for both of you for coming on the show today. As you know, I wrap up every episode by asking my guest a single question, and that is, what is your biggest helping, the single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our discussion today? Well, I would say that perfection is overrated and that if we strive for perfection instead of the as good as we can get, then we're never going to give ourselves the opportunity or the chance to, to fly, really, to succeed. And I guess I would say that the most important thing I could recommend is that we need to be better readers of other people. We need to understand how to understand what other people are thinking about us and to adjust our behavior, our communication, so that we can better shape that impression so that it matches the one we want them to have of us. Excellent. Where can people find you guys? Well, our website is www.andyandialal.com. So andyandial.com. And we have blogs posted there and we have some uh, assessment tools. So that's a place to visit us. Perfect. Well, I want to thank you both for coming on the show today and sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you so much. Very glad to be here. We appreciate your having us. <laughs> and I also want to thank each and every one of you who chose to listen to this episode. If you liked what you heard, go subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. 